0: hello and welcome to my podcast today we're going a little unusual this is going to be called book review part one we're definitely going to have a couple thousand parts of these book review episodes so i might just name them about or after the uh books that we're going to be reviewing um thank you for listening let's dive right in Okay, let's dive right into part one. I have in front of me, Shadow and Bone, the collector's edition by Leigh Bardugo. So, let's talk about it. Shadow and Bone is about a map maker. Well, actually, let's start with where it began. Why I bought the book, and... Yeah. So, a while ago, my mom was reading this book called Six of Crows. It was written by Leigh Bardugo, and she said it was incredible. And so I was like, you know, sounds cool, I'll read it. Um, And I started reading it, and I was like, eh. This was right around the time that the show Shadow and Bone had come out on Netflix, and it was a combination of Six of Crows and Shadow and Bone. So, I just drifted away from Six of Crows, um, and didn't read it, haven't read it, it, still. Um, because I had no idea what anybody was talking about, and, yeah. Um, Shadow and Bone, on the other hand, I think it was the first book that Leigh Bardugo wrote for the Grishaverse. Um... And it's really good. I knew what was happening, and yeah. So let's get into what Shadow and Bone is about. Um, oh, come on. on. Apparently, the Collector's dish Edition doesn't have the summary on the back. Um. Yeah. So um, it's about a girl. In a magical world, so basically there are these people called these magical people called Grisha, and there are the Corporealki, the Order of the Living and the Dead. Um, in there there are heart tenders and healers. There's the Etherealki, I think. Um, the Order of Summoners. There's Squalors, and Fury, and Tide Makers, and then there's Materialki, the Order of Fabricators, and in there is Draughts and Alchemy. Um, you usually hear um, them called either the Corporalki. Are usually called heart tenders and healers because you know they're heart tenders and healers. But the etheralki they're usually called summoners and aren't called squallers in theory or tide makers. The tiriaki, the order of fabricators, they're usually called fabricators just because they are fabricators. So um, it's about this girl. She's an orphan. And she lives in this house with a... She she lives in an orphanage with a man who um, is very rich and wishes to give children homes. And so children are tested at a young age to see if they're Grisha. And she was tested... She came up negative. And so... She also really likes this boy... Who she's been hanging out with at the orphanage. And... They go on to be soldiers in the Grisha military together. The, uh... Oh. What's it called? The First Army? The Second Army? The First. I think it's the First Army. Um. And... Basically... They're walking towards this thing called the Shadowfold. This is where the book begins, um, past the intro. Uh, so they're walking towards this thing called the Shadowfold. I don't think I remember why, but they were gonna... Yeah, she's a map maker, and she was making maps at the camp just Below the Shadow Fold. She was going to go into the Shadow Fold the next day. Um, she didn't know what it was like. The Shadow Fold is mysterious. It's just a dark veil. Between, uh, let's see. I have the map. Of the universe. Or the universe. Here somewhere. Uh. mm, Ah, there. The Shadow Fold is... Called the Unsee. Um, it divides Ferja, um, and Shuhan from uh. Oh yeah. Okay. So never mind. Just one sec. Um, Ravka, Ferja, and Shuhan are divided into two pieces because of the Shadow Fold. There's the western side, which holds Tisabea, Permafrost, Ravica, um, well, most of Ravica, and most of Shuhan. It also holds Os Alta, the capital of Ravica. And it also heard, holds Kribrisk, a town in Ravica, which is where she is right now and so she's about to cross over the shadow fold, she's making maps you know, and yeah she goes to bed with all the other soldiers the next day next day they go over the unsea the unsea man it is just dark no sounds just the sound of Wind against the sand skiffs coming from the summoners. Sand skiffs are basically boats for sand, like kind of boats, except except for the underside is a sled, basically. And so they're going across. You know, fine day in the Shadow Fold, and then they hear the flapping of wings. gets closer flapping starts to circle them and then they saw it the vulcra can't explain what they look like the author does explain it somewhere in here but I I'm too uh, let's say um, lazy to go and find um, what the Volcra look like um, and so, they're basically fighting off the Volcra, and try, well, trying to fight off the Volcra. They're everywhere, they're surrounding them, they're like, ah, woo, ah, we're all gonna die! And, then, the boy that this girl likes, his name is Mal, he gets picked up by one of the Volcra. And... She gets hurt by that Vokra while trying to save him. And the last thing she remembers from the Shadow Fold was a bright flash of light and a feeling awakening inside her, I think it said. And then... It was... Well... The next thing she knew, she was going back to Cribris... And they hadn't made it across the fold to Novo Um, They turned back because of the volkra And, yeah. <laughs> um, let's see. Mm. Sorry about this. Um, yes, everybody's like, is that her? Is that her? Oh my gosh. What did she do? What did she do? And whoa, this episode is going really long. Ah uh, You know what? Let's continue. What happened? What happened? What did she do? And she is isolated for a little bit in the jail, the camp jail, and then she goes straight. ...from the jail to the Darkling's tent. The Darkling... ...is a man who can, uh... ...he rules all the Grisha... ...and you don't want to mess with this guy. Um... ...he... ...well... ...he says, do what you did in the fold. And she's like, what did I do? And he says, what are you? And she's like, what, what? And then... ...he says... Here, I can help. And he touches her. He grabs her arm. And he cuts her. And she's just surrounded by darkness. All of a sudden. And she's like, oh god, what's happening? And then all of a sudden, she starts glowing. Like, glowing. Like sunlight. Really, really bright. And <clears throat> Like, the Darkling's like, oh my god, oh my god, we're saved. And she's like, what the, what, what's going on? What's going on? And, um, yeah. Uh, then he's like, oh my gosh, she's a Sun Summoner, we're saved. She can destroy the Fold. And the end of part one for Shadow and Bone um, overall, really good book, um, yeah, summary is gonna take a while, it was a pretty short book, I mean, only, like, let's see, uh, Three hundred fifty-six pages. Yeah, so pretty short. Um, fun read. It was very incredible. And I'm not going to give away the end. Of course, I'll give away the end later. Thank you for listening. I'll see y'all in part two, which is going to be about let's see, Ready Player One. How about that? Thank you for listening. Hello, this is part two, Ready Player One. So I first got this book during the darkest time of COVID. I remember it arriving, well, I got it from the librarian at, just, bleh, at the middle school that I currently go to, when I was in elementary school, because my mom works at my school. Uh, and so I got the book... And I remember I was playing Jedi Fallen Order, and my mom said, here you go, it's really good. And I had asked her for it. I was like, please, I really want this book. It sounds incredible. Uh, this was, yeah, 2020. So, yeah. Not really, you know... Uh, It wasn't around when the movie had come out, which is a really good bu- movie, but the book was old enough that it <laughs> it says on the cover, soon to be a major motion picture directed by Steven Spielberg. Um, so, it's written by Ernest Cline, New York Times bestseller, and USA Today says, Enchanting Willy Wonka meets the Matrix, and I mean, Yeah. <laughs> That's very true. Um, Entertainment Weekly says one adventure leads expertly to the next. Time simply evaporates. CNN.com says an addictive read, part intergalactic scavenger hunt, part romance, all heart. Um, Austin American Statesman. That's a weird name. Um, Incredibly entertaining, a geek fantasia. Yeah. It is really good. Um. In the year 2044. Reality is an ugly place. The only time. Teenage Wade Watts. Really feels alive. Is when, he jack- when he's jacked into the virtual utopia. Known as the Oasis. Wade's devoted his life. To studying puzzles. Hidden within the world's digital confines. Puzzles that are based on on their creator's obsession with the pop culture of decades past, and that promise, massive power, and fortune to whoever can unlock them. But when Wade stumbles upon the first clue, he finds himself beset by players willing to kill to take this ultimate prize. The race is on, and if Wade's going to survive, he'll have to win and confront the real world. He's always been so desperate to escape. So, let's read the, the intro. Chapter Zero. You know what? I'm going to need some water. Just a second. Okay. Welcome back. Your mouth can just get really dry after talking for like 30 minutes, 20 minutes. Uh, yeah. I haven't made this episode 20 minutes long. It's just. I had to do a lot of redos. Okay. So. We're going to talk. We're going to read chapter zero, the intro. Everyone my age remembers where they were and what they were doing when they first heard about the contest. I was sitting in my hideout watching cartoons when the news bulletin broke in on my video feed, announcing that James Halliday had died during the night. I'd heard. I heard. Yeah. I'd heard of Halliday, of course. Everyone had. He was a video. Game designer responsible for creating the Oasis, a massively multiplayer online game that had gradually evolved into the gro- into the globally networked virtual reality most of humanity now uses on a daily basis. The unprecedented success of the Oasis had made Halliday one of the wealthiest people in the world. At first, I couldn't understand why the media was making. Such a big deal of the billionaire's death. After all, the people of planet Earth had other concerns. The ongoing energy crisis. Catastrophic climate change. Widespread famine, poverty, and disease. Half a dozen wars. You know, dogs and cats living together. That's hysteria. Normally, the news feeds didn't interrupt everyone's interactive sitcoms and soap operas unless something really major had happened like the outbreak of some new killer virus or another major city vanishing in a mushroom cloud big stuff like that as famous as he was holiday's death should have been warranted only a brief should have warranted only a brief segment on the evening news so the unwashed masses could shake their heads in envy when the newscasters announced the obscenely large amount of money that would be dolled out to the rich man's heirs. But that was the rub. James Halliday had no heirs. He died a a 67-year-old bachelor with no living relatives and by most accounts, without a single friend. He'd spent the last 15 years of his life in self-imposed isolation, during which time, if the rumors were to be believed, he'd gone completely insane. So the real jaw-dropping news that January morning, the news that everyone <clears throat> from Toronto to Tokyo crapping crap- in their cornflakes... Concerned the contents. Okay, just one second. So, the real jaw dropping news that January morning, the news that had everyone from Toronto to Tokyo crapping in their cornflakes, concerned the contents of Halliday's last will and testament, and the fate of his vast fortune. Halliday had prepared a short video message along with instructions that it be released to the world media at the time of his death. He'd also arranged to have a copy of the video emailed to every single Oasis user that same morning. I still remember hearing the familiar electronic chime when it around him when it arrived in my inbox, just a few seconds after I saw that first news bulletin bulletin. His video message was actually on a meticulously constructed short film titled Anorak's Inventation. A famous eccentric holiday had harbored a a lifelong obsession with the 1980s, the decade during which he had been a teenager. An Anorak's invention was crammed with obscure 80s pop culture references, nearly all of which were lost on me the first time I viewed it. The entire video was just over five minutes long in length, and in the days and weeks that followed, it would become the most scrutinized piece of film in history, surpassing even the Zaprooter film and the amount of painstaking frame-by-frame analysis devoted to it. My entire generation would come to know every second of Halliday's message. By heart. Anorak's invitation begins with the sound of trumpets. The opening of an old song called "Dead Man's Party." I'll have to listen to that. That was not in the book, by the way. The, I'll have to listen to that part. The song plays over a dark screen for the first few seconds until the trumpets are joined by a guitar, and that's when Halliday appears. But he's not a sixty-seven-year-old man ravaged by time and illness. He looks just like just as he did on the cover of Time magazine back in 2014. A tall, thin, healthy man in his early 40s, 40s, with unkept hair and his trademark horn-rimmed horn-rimmed eyeglasses. He's also wearing the same clothing he wore in the Time cover photo. Faded jeans and a vintage Space Invaders t-shirt. Holiday is a high at a high school dance being held in a large gymnasium. He's surrounded by teenagers whose clothing, hairstyles, and dance moves all indicate the period is the late 1980s. And then there's a reference mark at the bottom of the page. There's another reference mark that says, Careful analysis of this scene reveals that all of the teenagers behind Holiday are actually extras from various John Hughes team films who have been digitally cut digitally cut and pasted into the photo Halliday is dancing too something no one ever saw him do in real life grinning maniacally he, spent, he spins in rapid circles swinging his arms and head in time with a song flawlessly cycling through several signature 80's dance moves but Halliday has no dance partner he is as the saying goes dancing with himself. A few lines of text appear briefly at the lower left-hand corner of the screen, listing the name of the band, the song's title, the record label, and the year of release, as if this were an old music video airing on MTV. Oingo Boingo, Dead Man's Party, MCA Records, 1985. When the lyrics kick in, Halliday begins to lip-sync along. Still gear-rating. All dressed up, nowhere to go. Walking with a dead man over my shoulder. Don't run away, it's only me. He abruptly stops dancing and makes a cutting motion with his right hand, silencing the music. At the same moment, the dancers in the gymnasium behind him vanish. And the scene around him suddenly changes. Holiday. Now stands at the front of a parlor next to an open casket. His surroundings are actually from a scene in the 1989 film Heathers. Halliday appears to have digitally recreated the funeral parlor set and then inserted himself into it. A second, much older Halliday lies inside the casket. His body Emaciated and ravaged by cancer. Shiny quarters cover each of his eyelids. And then there's the little cross, and there's the little cross again. at the bottom of the page. High-resolution scrutiny reveals that both quarters were minted in 1984. The younger holiday gazes down at the corp- corpse of his older self with mock sadness, then turns to address the assembled mourners. And then there's a double cross. And then at the big bottom of the page, there's another double cross. Man, there's a lot of references in this first part. The mourners are actually all actors and extras from the same funeral scene in Heathers. Winona Ryder and Christian Slater are very, are clearly visible in the audience, sitting near the back. Halliday snaps his fingers and a scroll appears in his right hand. He opens it with a flourish and, then, and it unfurls to the floor unraveling down the aisle in front of him. He breaks the fourth wall, addressing the viewer, and begins to read. I, James Donovan Halliday, being of sound mind and disposing memory, do hereby make, publish, and declare this instrument to be my last will and testament, hereby revoking any and all wills caused by me at any time heretofore made. He continues reading faster and faster. Time through several more paragraphs as leaves, legally until he's speaking so rapidly that the words are unintelligible. Then he stops abruptly. Forget it, he says. Even at that speed, it would take me a month to read the whole thing. Sad to say, I don't have that kind of time. He drops the scroll and it vanishes in a shower of gold dust. Let me just give you the highlights. Funeral parlor vanishes, and the scene changes once again. Holiday now stands in front of an immersive bank vault door. My entire estate, including a controlling share of stock in my company, gregarious simulation systems, is to be placed in escrow until such time as a single condition I have set forth in my will is met. The first individual to meet that condition will inherit my entire fortune, currently valued in excess of $240 billion. The vault door swings open, and Halliday walks inside. The interior of the vault is enormous, enormous, and it contains a huge stack of gold bars, roughly the size of a large house. Here's the dough I'm putting up for grabs, Halliday says, grinning broadly. What the hell? You can't take it with you, right? Halliday leans against the sack of gold bars, and the camera pulls in tight on his face. Now I'm sure you're wondering, what do you have to do to get your hands on all this moolah? Well, hold your horses, kids. I'm getting to that. He pauses dramatically, his expression changing to that of a child about to reveal a big secret. Halliday snaps his fingers, Again, and the vault disappears. In the same instant, Halliday shrinks and morphs into a small boy, wearing brown corduroys and a faded Muffet Show t-shirt. Halliday now looks exactly as he did in a school photo taken in 1980 when he was 8 years old. The young Halliday stands in a cluttered living room with burnt orange carpeting, wood-paneled walls, and a kitschy, late-70s decor. Decor. A 21-inch Zenith television sits nearby, with an Atari 2600 game console hooked up to it. This was the first video game system I ever owned, how they says now in a childish voice. An Atari 2600. I got it for Christmas in 1979. He plops down in front of the Atari, picks up a joystick, and begins to play. My favorite game was this one. He says, nodding at the TV screen where a small square is traveling through a series of simple mazes. It was called Adventure. Like many of the early video games, Adventure was designed and programmed by just one person. But back then, Atari refused to give its pu- programmers credit for their, bu- for their work, so the name of the game's creators didn't actually appear anywhere on the packaging. On a TV screen, we Halliday Holiday. Use a sword to slay a red jet dragon. Although, due to the game's crude low-resolution graphics, this looks more like a square using an arrow to stab a deformed duck. So the guy who created Adventure, a man named Warren Robinette, decided to hide his name inside the game in his, itself. He hid a key in one of the game's labyrinths. He found this key, a small pixel-sized gray dot, You could use it to enter a secret room where Robinette had hidden his name. On the TV, Halliday guides his square protagonist into the game's secret room where the words, created by Warren Robinette, appear in the center of the screen. This, Halliday says, pointing to the screen with genuine reverence, was the very first video game easter egg. Robinette hid it inside the game's code without telling a soul. And Atari manufactured it and shipped Adventure all over the world, without knowing about the secret room. They didn't find about. They didn't find out about the eggs' existence until a few months later, when kids all over the world began to discover it. I was one of those kids, and finding Robinette's Easter egg for the first time was one of the coolest video game experiences of my life. <laughs> The young Halliday drops his joystick and stands, as he does. The living room fades away, and the scene shifts again. Halliday now stands in a dim cavern, where light from unseen torches flickers off the damp walls. In the same instant, Halliday's experience also changes once again, as he morphs into his famous oasis avatar, Anrak. A tall-robed wizard with a slightly more handsome version of the adult holiday's face, minus the eyeglasses. Anorak is dressed in his trademark black robes, with his avatar's emblem, a large calligraphic letter A, embroidered on each sleeve. Before I died, Anorak says, speaking in a much deeper voice, I created my own Easter egg and hid it somewhere inside my most popular video game, the Oasis. The first person to find my Easter egg will inherit my entire fortune. <sighs> the egg is well hidden. I didn't just leave it lying under a rock somewhere. I suppose you could say that it's locked inside a safe that is buried in a secret room that lies hidden at the center of a maze located somewhere. He reaches up to his right temple, up here. But don't worry. I've left a few clues lying around to get everyone started, and here's the first one. Anorak makes a grand gesture with his right hand, and three keys and three keys appear, spitting slowly in the air in front of him. They appear to be made of copper, jade, and clear crystal. As the keys continue to spin, Anorak recites a piece of verse, and as he speaks each line, it appears briefly... In the flaming subtitles across the bottom screen, three hidden keys open three secret gates. Whether in the errant will be tested for worthy traits, and those with the skill to survive these three straits will reach the end where the prize awa- awaits. As he finishes, the jade and crystal keys vanish, leaving only the copper key, which now hangs on a chain around Anorak's neck. The camera follows Anarak as he turns and continues farther into the dark cavern. A few seconds later he arrives at a pair of massive wooden doors set into the cavern's rocky wall. These doors are branded with steel and there are shields and dragons carved into their surfaces. I couldn't play test this particular game, so I worry that I may have hidden my Easter egg a little too well. Made it too made it too difficult to reach. I'm not sure. If that's the case, it's too late to change anything now. So I guess we'll see. Anarak throws open the double doors, revealing an immersive treasure room filled with piles of glittering gold coins and jewels and jewel encrusted goblets. Analysis reveals that dozens of curious items hidden among the mounds of reveals dozens of curious items hidden among the mounds of treasure. Most notably Several early home computers. An Apple IIe. A Camarade 64. An Atari 800 Extra Large. And a Trash 80 color computer. It's actually TRS 80 color computer too. But... Mm. Dozens of video game controllers. For a variety of game systems. And hundreds of polyhedral dice like those used... In tabletop role-playing games are also found. Then he steps into the open doorway and turns to face the viewer, stretching out his arms to hold open the giant double doors. A freeze frame of this scene appears nearly identical to a painting by Jeff Easley that appeared on the cover of The Dungeon Master's Guide, a Dungeons and Dragons rulebook published in 1983. So without further ado... And Rek announces, Let the hunt for Halliday's Easter egg begin. Then he vanishes in a flash of light, leaving the viewer to gaze through the open doorway at the glittering mounds of treasure that lay beyond. Then the screen fades to black. At the end of the video, Halliday included a link to his personal website, which is changed which had changed drastically on the morning of his death. For over a decade, the only thing posted there had been a short, looping animation that showed his avatar interact, sitting in a medieval library, hunched over a scarred work table, mixing potions and poring over dusty spellbooks with a large painting of a black dragon visible on the wall behind him. But now that animation was gone, and in its place there was a high score list like those that used, used, to, be, used to appear in old corn-operated video games the list had ten number spots. Each displayed the initials JDH, James Donovan Halliday, followed by a score of six zeros. This high score list quickly became to be known as the scoreboard. Just below the scoreboard was an icon that looked like a small leather-bound book, which linked to a free downloadable copy of Anorak's Almanac, sorry. A collection of hundreds of Halliday's undated journal entries. The almanac was over a thousand pages long, but it continued few details about Halliday's personal life or his day to day activities. Most of the entries were him's stream were his stream of unconscious of consciousness observations on various classic Video games, science fiction, and fantasy novels, movies, comic books, and 80s pop culture mixed with humorous diatribes denouncing everything from organized religion to diet soda. The hunt, as the contest came to be known, quickly wove wove its way into global culture like winning the lottery, finding Halliday's easter egg became a popular fantasy among do- adults and children alike. It was a game anyone could play, and at first, there seemed to be no right or wrong way to play it. The only thing Anorak the Lamb seemed to indicate was that a familiarity with Halliday's various, various obsessions would be essential to finding the egg. This led to a global fascination with 1980s pop culture. Fifty years after the decade had ended, the movies, music, games, and fashions of the 1980s were all the rage once again. By 2041, spiked hair and acid-washed jeans were back in style, and covers of, 80, of hit 80s pop songs by cont- contemporary bands dominated the muse chart, music charts people who had actually been teenagers in the 1980s, all now approaching old age, of the strange experience of seeing the fads and fashions of their youth embraced and studied by their grandchildren. A new subculture was born, composed of the millions of people who now devoted every free moment of their lives to searching for holiday's egg. At first, these individuals were simply known as egg hunters, but this quickly trans... Trun- Truncated to the nickname Gunters. During the first year of the hunt, being a Gunter was highly fashionable, and nearly every Oasis user claimed to be one. When the first anniversary of Halliday's death arrived, the fervor surrounding the contest began to dive down. <sighs> An entire year had passed, and no one had found anything. Not a single key or gate. Part of the problem was the sheer size of the Oasis. It contained thousands of simulated worlds where the keys might be hidden, and it could take a gunter years to conduct a thorough search of any one of them. Despite all the professional gunters who boasted on their blogs that they were getting closer to a breakthrough every day, the truth gradually became apparent. No one really even knew exactly what it was and it was they were looking for or where to start looking for it another year passed and another still nothing the general public lost all interest in the contest people g- began to assume that it was all just an outlandish hoax perpetrated by a rich nut job other believed that if the egg really did exist no one was ever going to find it meanwhile the oasis continued to evolve and grow in popularity, protected from takeover attempts and legal challenges by the ironclad terms of Halliday's will and the army of rabid lawyers he had tasked with administering his estate. Halliday's Easter egg gradually moves into the realm of urban legend and the ever-dwindling tribe of gunters, gradually became the object of ridicule. ridicule. Every year on the anniversary of Halliday's death, newscasters jokingly reported on their continued lack of progress, and each year, more gunters called it quits, concluding that Halliday had indeed made the egg impossible to find. Another year went by, and another. Then on the evening of February eleventh, 2045, an avatar's name appeared on the top of the scoreboard for the whole world to see. After five long years, the copper key had finally been found by an 18-year-old kid living in a trailer park on the outskirts of Oklahoma City. That kid was me. Dozens of books, cartoons, movies, and miniseries have attempted to tell the story of everything that happened next, but every single one of them got it wrong. So I want to set the record straight once and for all. Thank you for listening to the episode. My mouth hurts and my throat is dry. My mouth is also dry. That was a lot of talking. I feel bad for people who make like one hour podcasts. That would really suck. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Thanks for listening. I poured my heart into this one. Uh, See you guys next time. Thank you. Bye.